Warning, this show may contain adult content, language, and humor and is intended for mature audiences. If that's not you, please stop listening now. Nothing you hear on Sex and Science Hour is intended as medical advice, financial advice, legal advice, therapy, or really anything other than entertainment. Please take everything you hear with a grain of salt. Oh, and if you're hearing us on an affiliate network, the ideas and views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the network you're listening on or of any sponsors or affiliate products you might hear about on the show. Now that all that's out of the way, let's start the show. This is Sex and Science Hour with Brian Sovereign and Dr. Stephanie Murphy. Get your freak on. You thought we were off on our season break. But after three days, we have risen! <laughs> Behold! Sex and Science Hour is here with episode 25 of season three, the last episode of season three. You thought we took off early, but we did not. We are here. Yeah, I mean, we will end up taking a little bit of a break. uh, We are. We're going to take like a month off in between seasons. Is it going to be a month? Yeah. Wow. Okay, that's good. No, it's fine. Why why is that? Wow, we talked about this before. I forgot. Oh, okay. Well, that's as good a reason. <laughs> I'm just, I'm expressing empathy for the listeners, you know. Well. But they'll y- love it. Yeah. I mean, I think people, you know, they might be going some through some withdrawals of Sex and Science Hour. I know there's people who love to listen every week. Yeah. But we have so many episodes now. We've done three whole seasons, and um, the seasons two and three had like 25 episodes each. Season one had like 20 episodes. Right. So, yeah, there you go. There's lots of content there. And... A little bit of inside baseball here. I haven't updated the Sex and Science Hour website in a long time. I'm That's like my response. The, yeah, I had one job, you know. It's like my <laughs> one job to do with the show. And sometimes I slack off. And so I haven't actually posted the shows on the Sex and Science Hour website for a while. So you'll be getting a, a glut of them released all at once before the season breaks. So hopefully that'll be something to tide you over. And then maybe you won't even, if you're a few weeks behind and you got to catch up on listening to them, maybe you won't even notice that we were gone. We'll be back with a bang, though. Yeah, yes, of course we will. And we've got a great show for you today because this is the season finale. So I figured we'd do something a little bit special. We actually have an extra segment in tonight's show. Oh, all right. Yeah. So stay tuned for that. You guys are going to love it. It even has special music to go along with it. But anyway, um, we should get into our main content because, you know, because we have a, a fourth segment tonight, uh, the first three segments are going to be maybe a little shorter than usual. So uh, let's just get right into it. Let's do what it. What do you think, Brian? Okay. So, um, I guess Burger King tried to do a strategy where they made some ad that would trigger the Google Home devices to give the definition of what a Whopper burger is, right? Yeah. So did you hear about this? I did hear about this. Um, I might have even touched on a little bit on my show Sovereign Tech. Uh, this is so for those that don't know, uh, Burger King is a fast food. No, I'm kidding. For those that don't know about Google Home. <laughs> yeah. What is Google Home? I assume you know what Burger King is. Uh, Google Home is a little cylindrical device 
that is effectively a speaker in microphones that connects to your router um, and, you know, in turn connects to Google servers and act as acts as a potential as a portal um, for all everything you do, you know, through your Google account and you know, the internet in general through voice commands. It is comparable to Amazon's Alexa or the Amazon echo. Um, and it definitely a direct competitor to that. So, you know, it's, it's, I mean, it's not like, I guess you could call it a virtual assistant. Google keeps changing the name of its assistant technology. So it's kind of tough to pin that down at times, mm-hmm. but that's what Google home is. And so Google home is designed to react to uh, voice commands and voice commands only. So if a commercial you know, whatever it is, is Burger playing, King or otherwise, that happens to sound an awful lot like a voice command. It wouldn't be able to tell the difference. Well, yeah, right. Yes, Google Home alone can't tell the difference. Your you can set it up. I think you can set up your entire Google account to do what's called a trusted voice. And generally, you can only set this up through your phone. But it should. I think it works across your account. But most people don't take the time to set that sort of thing up. And in fact, most people, rightfully so, would be like. Well, I don't want them to have more of my voice. You know, this is going to be privacy infringing, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, I mean, everything's to varying degrees, but I could understand that. So there's kind of a way that this could have been thwarted if you had that trusted voice set up. But otherwise, generally, you're absolutely right, Stephanie. It'll react to anybody saying anything. In fact, I love there's a great uh, little like cartoon, political cartoon. Well, it's not political, but little cartoon that has where, you know, a person walks in and starts just start saying, Alexa, activate this or Google, you know, OK, Google, do this to, because, you know, the people entering your home are seeing how many spy devices exist within the house. Yeah, right. Because, yeah. I mean, again, that's all these things are. It's, it's just a cylinder full of microphones with a nice speaker on it. And that's anyway, that's a, pl- and it can continue. be kind of easily outsmarted. But in this case, Burger King was trying to basically manipulate that to their advantage right. and make a commercial that would set the things off. But. Internet users fought back against it because what it was designed to do, the customer was designed to like make the Google Home recite the definition of a Whopper, which is a Burger King sandwich. That's what the commercial was going to do, right? I guess, yeah. Yeah, Um, It's a 15-second commercial. It says, I'm reading this article here from uh, just from the AP about it, and it said that that, um, Burger King had this 15-second ad that was designed to trigger Google Home devices into reciting the definition of a Whopper pulled from the website Wikipedia. So it goes, you know, it goes and accesses Wikipedia and reads what a Whopper is. But then people started editing the Wikipedia page, and somebody put in, like, that a Whopper has contained cyanide as one of the <laughs> ingredients. Some Somebody edited it to say that the Whopper is the worst hamburger product that's sold by the chain, <laughs> that's oh. sold by Burger King. Wow. Burger King, owned by Restaurant Brands International, says it is not behind the negative edits and that it has been trying to change the definition back to one that it was hoping to promote. But that's a problem with Wikipedia, right? Because a company shouldn't be able to put make the Wikipedia of their own product, right? That's obviously like a conflict of interest. Sure, it's right. It's be an objective thing, not an ad. Yeah, this is one of the rare flaws Wikipedia has, is that the stuff can be edited on the fly. Granted, there should be Wikipedians that, that kind of like recognize that, or if it was Burger King doing it, that they would recognize the conflict of interest. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's great in theory, sometimes doesn't work out the best in practice. Yeah, that's right. And so 
Um, that was pretty much it. But basically, it, it backfired. I mean, I think there's so many companies nowadays that are trying to like exploit these cute little tricks, and it just kind of backfires on them. But some of the Twitter accounts, like Denny's, have you seen Denny's Twitter account? Oh yeah. Oh, it's it's hilarious. Oh, they, like, they're, they make, they're brilliant. They just make memes. They're like, look at this pancake, and it has little words in the pancake, and it yeah. says like, nothing means anything. Your yeah. life is me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm of half a mind to think that Denny's is like paying a bunch of nine year olds in pancakes because they are so. <laughs> Oh, Johnny on the spot with 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 just the brilliance of their their advertising and memes and tweets and 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 Tumblr and all that. It's uh, it's really something. Some of it's even political and it's just damned hilarious. Yeah. Um, I will say what's creepy about this one with Burger King was that Google made it so that that commercial didn't work, not by changing the commercial, but by changing the fact that the firmware. Yeah, they they updated the device so that oh, it shit. would not recognize that voice and that command. That should worry people, because they could do that to anything, anyone, anytime. Yeah, they absolutely could. Open the pod bay door. I can't do that. Sorry. Exactly. (laughs) All right. Well, there's more coming up here on Sex and Science Hour. I actually like Burger King better than McDonald's, but they've had a a long way to catch up in terms of sales and beating them. So I guess they're just still still lagging a little bit behind. I think people that have a Google Home probably don't eat a Burger King either. Kind of a flawed strategy. Speaking of tech stuff, you all should tune into Sovereign Tech because while Sex and Science Hour takes us a season vacation, Sovereign Tech never sleeps. And Sovereign Tech is oh. on multiple times a week. He's got a free show for two hours every set. Every Saturday, and he's got Patreon only content at sovereigntech.com, S O V R Y N tech.com, where you can hear listener QAs, you can get your questions answered, you can do custom hangouts with Brian, and you get all kinds of good, juicy stuff like Brian talking shit um, <laughs> that n- not everybody gets access to. Yeah. So that's S O V R Y N tech.com. Please become a patron. That way, maybe one day I can sleep. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> This is Sex and Science Hour. The segments are going by really fast, but don't worry. There's gonna we're gonna make up for it all in the fourth segment. Ooh. Now this is really interesting, Brian. The world is running out of natural resources. We all know that, right? Where there's Ooh. there's scarce natural resources, and greedy capitalist companies are using them up and selling them off to people and selling our children's future, so that the earth is just going to be a barren wasteland <laughs> with a bunch of buildings and computers i'm just gonna say i know that there's an opposing opinion to all of that but let us continue not not that there are (laughs) scarce resources resources are by their very nature scarce but yeah no i mean i i i was embellishing that i don't really believe that i (laughs) i I think that the truth is sort of somewhere in the middle i mean there's also this this opposing argument to what i just said the sort of environmentalist line that well actually capitalism is finding new and creative ways to use resources that previously weren't that valuable because there's profit motives to do so uh-huh. and actually when one of them gets scarce it just goes up in price until it's no longer cost effective to use you to basically um strip the resource to use the last of it what is the word for when you use like the last remaining parts of a resource like a scarce resource uh deplete know. yeah deplete you're okay. right that thank yep. you um so it's it's basically not profitable to deplete resources because the price goes up when they start getting depleted and then you have to find a new material to build your whatever out of. Sure. The world is not really the Lorax. So I think, I mean, I think there's like, the truth lies somewhere in the middle, right? Because we live in a world where the political incentives aren't always set up so that it's, it's 
pure capitalism, right, in that noble form, where <laughs> all their all that companies are working with are market incentives. There's actually a lot of confusion about like property rights, and there's a lot of government uh, cronyism that gives benefits to their friends and the co- big corporations that are you know in bed with the state, and so. The lines really get blurred a lot, and the incentives are not always aligned in terms of protecting the environment or in terms of um, protecting the little guys. It's more like in favor of governments and corporations. Absolutely. Corporatism, straight up. In practice, yeah. So anyway, um, it becomes a problem when scarce planetary resources start to run out. And there is a resource that's dwindling, but it's not one that you might think. It's not peak oil? It's not peak oil. It's not diamonds. It's not. Um, it's not uh, rhodium. It's not precious metals. It's sand. We've reached peak sand. Peak sand. <laughs> okay. The world is running out of sand, and this is from the New York Times opinion pages. So, um, if anything, I think they would probably be more biased toward the environmentalist side. But we'll, let's see what they have to say. Sure. So. Most Westerners facing criminal charges in Cambodia would be thanking their lucky stars at finding themselves safe in another country. But Alejandro Gonzalez Davidson, who is half British and half Spanish, is pleading with the government of Cambodia to allow him back to stand trial, along with three Cambodian colleagues. They've been charged, essentially, with interfering with harvesting one of the 21st century's most valuable resources, sand. Believe it or not, we use more of this natural resource than any other, except water and air. Sand is the thing modern cities are made of. Pretty much every apartment block, office tower, and shopping mall, from Beijing to Lagos, Nigeria, is made at least partially with concrete, which is basically just sand and gravel stuck together with cement. Every yard of asphalt road that connects all those buildings is also made with sand. So is every window in every one of those buildings. And yeah, glass is made of sand. It's silicon, right? Sure, right. Um, I guess computer chips are kind of made of it too, right? Uh, To a degree, yeah. In a sense, yeah. Yeah. Sand is the essential ingredient that makes modern life possible. And we're starting to run out, says the New York Times. That's mainly because the number and size of cities is exploding, especially in the developing world. Every year there are more people on the planet, and every year more of them move to cities. That's true. There's like millions of people moving to cities every single fucking day. Well, so, yeah, though, bear in mind, I've also seen statistics that millennials are leaving the cities in droves. Um, right. But it, this is like a global thing. It's not like yeah. what's happening in America. Yeah, Nobody yeah. cares about millennials. And yeah. stuff. No, right. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> when you use the word in the developing countries, in fact, fire me because like, <laughs> I don't You're believe fired, <laughs> using Ryan. the word millennial no. <laughs> like that, that, that should be, you know, such a, such a journalism, no, no, uh, or entertainment, <laughs> no, no, but whatever. Oh, Brian, I'll let you keep your job. All right. I'm, thanks. I like you. I'm a scarce and we are, we are you are you are the scarcest resource because oh, I could never replace you. No, that is nice. <laughs> um, every year, more and more people on the planet. Uh, there are more people on the planet, and every year, more of them move to cities. Since 1950, the world's urban population has ballooned to over 3.9 billion people, from 746 million in the last, uh, I guess, 70 years. According to the United Nations Environment Program, in 2012 alone, the world used enough concrete to build a wall 89 feet high and 89 feet wide around the equator. Holy shit. Wow. That's a lot of concrete. Wait, 
So it could actually happen. There's kind yeah, of this old theory get, that don't tell Donald Trump. About well, it. <laughs> well, not just that, but like like that. Oh, if every if all property was private, what if somebody built a wall so high that you could only get over it with a helicopter and like and it surrounded everything and, and well, nobody that could one, live. You can only and, get, get around it by tunneling through the ha- uh, hollow oh, earth from oh, oh, America right. to China. It's all real. It's all true. All right. Sorry. <laughs> from 2011 to 2013, China used more cement than the United States used in the entire 20th century, just in two years from 2011 to 2013. Wow. To build those cities, people are pulling untold amounts of sand out of the ground. Usable sand is a finite resource. Desert sand, shaped more by wind than water, generally doesn't work for construction. To get the sand we need, we're stripping riverbeds, floodplains, and beaches. Extracting the stuff is an estimated $70 billion industry. It runs the gamut from multinational corporations deploying enormous dredges to villagers toting shovels and buckets. In places where onshore sources have been exhausted, sand miners are turning to the seas. This often inflicts terrible costs on the environment. In India, river sand mining is disrupting ecosystems, killing countless fish and birds. In Indonesia, two dozen small islands are believed to have disappeared since 2005 because of sand mining. They're just literally taking the (laughs) islands and making them into cities. Holy shit. I mean, it's almost unbelievable. Like, this almost sounds like fear-mongering, but... I'm kind of wondering if there might be some truth to it, because that is an enormous amount of sand. And if they can only use sand that's basically beach sand and this, they're wanting to use the sand that's easiest to get. Yeah, of course, they're going to go to islands. Well, OK, so a, f- a couple of years ago, and small islands that nobody cares about. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I mean, now a couple of years ago, I did a lot of research into what's called System D, which is effectively yes. like the black market. Yeah. Uh, not necessarily a black market that's all about drugs or any other thing. Like, like sometimes it's about very usable stuff. It's and all just people who do business without getting licenses, without regulation, or paying taxes. Yeah. You know, it's just like the kind of people doing business without asking anyone's permission. Sure. I mean, they're glorified lemonade stands and what a wonderful thing. Yeah. Um, and so the, the interesting thing was, is that when I was reading about a lot of this stuff, I came across a term called sand mafias. And literally, this is black market groups selling off, you know, tons and and literal tons of sand. Wow. You know, I mean, like, and I guess this is why, because, you know, there's there's probably some kind of environmental protection acts going, you know, some kind of EPAs going out or whatever, um, trying to trying to stop this. And I'm not saying that I agree with those being done. I mean, I'm all about protecting the environment, of course. Well, the EPA can only reach to America, basically. But like, what are they going to do all over the world? How are they going to stop sand pirates from well, they digging can. up sand with their shovels? Right. No matter what they try. I mean, it. yeah, I mean, this is something like, you know, and this is getting kind of political, but like a lot of, you know, there's what's called the Kyoto Protocols, which has yeah. been uh, to an limit inv- carbon emissions. Sure. Right. But the point is, is that it's been an environmental movement for decades and like China won't accept it. Tons of countries won't yeah. accept the Kyoto Protocols. And so, and if they don't accept the it, US well, guess won't what? won't accept it either, right? Sure. Well, right. But I mean, even if they did, like, you have other countries that just aren't going to be a part of it. And so it's all a sham. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. And also, who's going to stop these, you know, sand mafias? I mean, it sounds ridiculous to mention them. It sounds like something out of Frank Herbert's Dune. Yeah. You know, like the Fremen running around or something. But, uh, but it's absolutely legitimate. And I had no idea this was a problem. I really didn't. Right. Yeah. I didn't think it was this big of a problem. I just figured that there were people doing it outside of regulation but they're probably doing it because well i mean because now there's, there's a, some poaching things in place about it yeah, yeah there's a need 
Wow. Yeah. So this is this just gets more interesting. Um, anyway, so it's inflicting these environmental costs. There's islands disappearing uh, off the coast of Indonesia. In Vietnam, miners have torn up hundreds of acres of forest to get at the sandy soil underneath. Sand miners have damaged coral reefs in Kenya and undermined bridges in Lib- Liberia and Nigeria. Environmentalists tie sand dredging in San Francisco Bay to the erosion of nearby beaches. Oh, shit. If they should be, there's anywhere they shouldn't be messing with the sand. It's San Francisco Bay, right? Yikes. Uh, People are getting hurt, too. Sand mining has been blamed for accidental deaths in Saudi Arabia, South Africa, and Gambia. In India and Indonesia, activists and government officials confronting black market sand mining gangs have been killed. That's what you were just talking about. Yeah. Wow. Don't mess with the sand mafia. Jesus. Sand mafia, mafia. (laughs) stronger regulations can prevent a lot of this damage i don't know about that (laughs) and do in most developed countries really it's not preventing the san francisco bay from sliding into the ocean right i yeah i i'm very skeptical that stronger regulations can do shit about this because will where there's a profit motive there's a way (laughs) yeah it's not going to because those sand mafias are there i'm shocked they can't find a way to use like your normal desert sand and i'd say get to it because like, there's so much stuff in Egypt that is literally buried under the sand that I'd love to find. Um, get to it. Yeah, that would be really interesting if they started just removing the sand from Egypt and, like, see what happens. Like, there's a sphinx under there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, we didn't know knows? until we started mining the sand. But anyway, um, they say uh, there's a co- – like, so the problem with that is that you can try to regulate, like, sand mining. But the problem is – Sand is tremendously heavy, which makes it expensive to transport. So if you forbid sand mining in your own backyard, as many American communities are trying to do, then it has to be trucked in from somewhere else, and that drives up the price. Concrete is relatively cheap, but if the cost of making a new building or road were to double, it could hit the economy hard. So yeah, that's the problem. You kind of That's one of those things where it's it's rock. It's crushed up rocks, literally. Yeah. So you really have to get it locally or else you're going to be paying huge shipping costs. And when it's the, the, the basically the fabric of all cities, like making concrete and roads like shit, you don't want to be paying a lot for that stuff. Right. Uh, not to mention the ec- extra truck traffic and pollution. We can make more sand, they say, but crushing rock or pulverizing concrete is costly, and the resulting sand is ill-suited for many applications. We can use alternative substances for some purposes, but what other substance can we possibly find 40 billion tons of every year? Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, I wonder if people will start mining asteroids or something. Well, you you actually hit on something that I've been thinking you know kind of this whole time I think there's is, where there's a will there's a way it might seem like a really difficult problem to solve now but also alternative building materials it's like m- remember when mining shale was cost prohibitive yeah like you couldn't um extract the the crude oil from it but now it it is such that those processes have become cheaper and more efficient and it is cost effective to extract oil from shale now Right. When it wasn't before. So perhaps there'll be new sources of sand. I, I seriously think this is exactly like the peak oil thing. There's never going to be peak oil because there's always going to be new ways of finding more of oil. extracting. Yeah. Yeah. Or converting or, or. It's a myth. Right. Or stretching. Yeah. Um, yeah I mean, I, I don't think it's unheard of. I mean, I know a lot of people do. We, we mentioned this at the beginning. I know a lot of people want to debate whether or not like, you know, the earth is really running out of resources, like at, at a rate that that it can't renew uh, quick enough or that humans can't be, you know, 
have enough ingenuity to solve. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, you know, regardless, I, I mean, I'm kind of of the opinion that, yeah, there are, I mean, well, not the opinion, the fact that there is limited resources. And I think it's, it's not, I don't find it to be ironic or a coincidence that now you have companies like DSI, Deep Space Industries, uh, and a lot of what like Blue Origin and even SpaceX is doing. Um, eventually, that kind of technology is, I, I just think without question is, and I mean, they've talked about it even, that it's going to go to uh, mining asteroids getting stuff off of other you know other planets in the solar system yeah. not going any further than that but that's got to be the situation if if we really run out of something we really need on earth and we can there's nothing we can possibly do about it or if that's just the cheapest way is to get it from space yeah they they know like yeah. i i think the people that can actually do something about this or that actually are in this industry they're well aware and they're yeah. probably long working on it I think the great thing about this is like I feel confident that I don't have to worry about this problem because like nobody has to worry about it because the profit motive in the market will take care of it. Whether that means that some people decide that, uh, okay, we're going to start a company to go mine asteroids for sand, or some people, other companies decide they're going to find more efficient ways of finding sand on Earth, or some other companies develop ways to use desert sand, or some other, com- or, or people just say, you know what, these cities really uh, making them out of concrete, maybe that's not such a good idea, or maybe the cities are kind of the problem. Maybe we shouldn't be all living in cities. Ah. You know, <laughs> I actually, that's that last one is kind of what I think might happen because, you know, if you look at America, like, yeah, there's people who really wish that everybody lived in cities. Like, this is like the Agenda 21 thing, right? Is like everybody should live in cities so we can easily control the population. But about 50% of the population lives in unpopulated rural areas. And there's not much concrete there. Yeah. And everybody does just fine. So maybe as the standard of living increases, people have the luxury of choice. They don't have to choose to live in a city. They can if they want to, but maybe they don't need to. And we don't need so many new cities. Absolutely. There you go. Problem takes care of itself. It's Sex and Science Hour. More coming up. Hello, this is Stephanie here. I'm a voice actor, and I want to tell you about some audiobooks in this segment before we get to uh, segment three. So I just did a really cool audiobook called Hopeless. Hopeless is a fiction book, and it's a story about BDSM, human trafficking, mysteries, and it's really got a lot of sex in it. So I think you'll like it if you like Sex and Science Hour. It's basically about a girl who uh, goes on a BDSM date to meet a meet a dominant guy, ends up getting kidnapped. Her best friend, who's a total noob to bondage and doesn't know anything about it, um, has to look for her. And in the process, she ends up like infiltrating the BDSM scene in her local community and has to get really deep undercover. <laughs> so if you uh, if you want to check it out, it's a great listen. I recommend it. Just search for Hopeless, narrated by me, Stephanie Murphy, and Paul Bryan. It's a dual point of view narration on audible.com. And of course, if you ever want to listen to any of my audiobooks, hit me up. I'll give you a free coupon code that gives you an audible credit. Now back to the show. This is Sex and Science Hour, and we're in segment three. So, Brian, are you worried about running out of sand? I'm not. Uh, I mean, I'm worried, uh, but at the same time, kind kind of not. Like, yeah. I, I agree. I think there's people that are aware of the problem and, and they're mm. going to work on it. Well, you know what I'm worried about? I'm worried about people who think there are only two genders, gosh darn it. And that's the way it always has to be. Oh, boy. And... <laughs> This next article is for you, for all you people. Hold on, hold on. This can of no. worms, what sand are they going to go into now? Uh, yeah, you just good question, because all the sand is gone. Um, <laughs> well, worms don't live in sand. They live in dirt. Right. But 
Of course. I suppose I, I doesn't sand kill them or like Sorry, diet, I think I was thinking of sandworms. Earth. I don't know. Yeah, well that was a good it was a good try anyway. All right. So <laughs> uh anyway, there's a lot of people out there who conflate sex and gender. Now, sex as as in biological sex means um basically the whole male and female and it relates to reproduction. Sure, body and parts. It's yeah, it has more of a biological connotation, I guess. Whereas gender is like what you feel like. It's more of a mental thing. It's more of a psychological thing. Mm-hmm. And biological sex and gender, there obviously there's a correlation because most people feel like their gender, who they feel like inside, matches their biological sex, right? That was basically pronounced at birth. Right. Right? Because your, your sex is, when you're born, when you were born, Brian, you came out of your mom. Yes. And they said... It's a boy. It was a harrowing day. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and when I was born, I came out of my mom and they said, it's a girl. And then from that moment on, they start treating us differently. They start treating us. They start treating you like a boy and me like a girl. Sure. And from the moment we're born, it's literally that instantaneous. Based on what our genitalia looks like, we start to get the messages from everyone around us that we have a certain role to play. And that's gender. That's not sex. That's gender. Right. So gender is all the psychological stuff. Sex is is supposed to be more of the biological stuff. Obviously, there's a correlation there. So you can see why some people confuse them or, or conflate them. Right. Mm -hmm. When they say, oh, yeah, well, there's only two genders because there's basically two biological sexes that you hear about most often. And most people do feel like their biological sex that was given to them at birth matches who they feel like inside. Yeah, of course, I feel like a girl. I was born and they said it's a girl and I feel like a woman. So everything is copacetic. (laughs) But of course, now we're seeing a lot of awareness come about in the media and, and in our social circles about. Uh, transgender people who feel like their biological sex and their gender do not line up. We're also seeing stuff about not people who say, well, I don't really feel comfortable as as any gender. You know, what is this gender thing? Why do I have to have a gender? Why Mm. do I have to accept this set of roles that was sort of placed on me the moment I was born in accordance with what my body looked like, you know? Sure. So... I, I can see a lot of people now sort of questioning the very idea of gender. And then there's some there's confusion. There's people who are resistant to that. Um, there's genuine confusion and people who genuinely have questions and they're trying to understand uh, this new these new ideas about gender and sex. But then there's also people who are just resistant and they just don't want to change their ideas about gender and sex. And they're like, what do you mean? There's only two genders. This is how I understand the world. Don't complicate things unnecessarily. I shouldn't have to learn anything new. Well, this article may throw a monkey wrench into the works because this is about um, basically all the things that can go not wrong i would i wouldn't say but all the differences that can exist outside of just the simple male and female with biological sex in humans okay so it's not it's not really as simple as you might think so anyway this article is from nature.com which by the way nature is one of the most respected scientific journals and this is this is a news feature from nature by claire ainsworth and it's called sex redefined The idea of two sexes is simplistic. Biologists now think that there is a wider spectrum than that. So anyway, this is from Science Magazine. So I just encourage you, listen to this with an open mind. It's at the very least, 
It's interesting, and if you're genuinely open-minded and have questions, it may answer some of your questions. Okay? So anyway, here we go. As a clinical geneticist, Paul James is accustomed to discussing some of the most delicate issues with his patients. But in early 2010, he found himself having a particularly awkward conversation about sex. A 46-year-old pregnant woman had visited his clinic at the Royal Melbourne Hospital in Australia to hear the results of an amniocentesis test to screen her baby's chromosomes for abnormalities. The baby was fine, but follow-up tests had revealed something astonishing about the mother— Her body was built of cells from two individuals, possibly twin embryos that had merged in her own mother's womb. And there was more. One set of cells carried two X chromosomes, the component that typically makes a person female, but the other had an X and a Y. Halfway through her fifth decade of life and pregnant with her third child, the woman learned for the first time that a large part of her body was chromosomally male. That's the kind of science fiction material who, for somebody who just came in for an amniocentesis, says James. So the mother was basically had male cells and female cells. Okay. XX and XY cells. Sex can be much more complicated than it at first seems. According to the simple scenario, the presence or absence of a Y chromosome is what counts. With it, you are male, and without it, you are female. But doctors have long known that some people straddle that boundary. Their sex chromosomes say one thing, but their gonads, ovaries or testicles, or sexual anatomy say another. Parents of children with these kinds of conditions, known as intersex conditions, or differences or disorders of sex development, DSDs, often face difficult decisions about whether to bring their child up as a boy or a girl. Some researchers now say that as many as one person out of a hundred has some form of DSD. So basically, they're saying what we've said a bunch of times on the show, that ambigu- so-called ambiguous genitalia or children that don't fall neatly into the male or female category, either there's something weird going on with their chromosomes, not weird, there's something unusual going on with their chromosomes, or there's something unusual going on with their reproductive organs. And the parents are like, okay, is it a boy or a girl? Because parents and a lot of people use gender as a basis for understanding the world. And they want to, I guess, instill those gender roles in their child. And, you know, maybe you could say, well, it shouldn't make a difference whether the child is a girl or a boy. But there's obviously a lot of practical considerations, right? A lot of schools will separate children by sex. Obviously, there's the bathroom issue. There's like, how do you dress the child, right? Um, And then some people would say, like, well, what toys do you give them? Or what do you tell them about, about sex and gender? So those are all you know, interesting questions that can be uh, a curveball can be thrown when somebody has a difference of sex development or a disorder of sex development. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely a huge part of people's worldview. I mean, you know, God, God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Stevie, Evie, Steve or something. Right. <laughs> and of course, I don't agree. I haven't with that. heard that one in a while. <laughs> yeah. Well, I tried to add it, make it a little more, you know, ambiguous with Stevie, Evie. Uh, but <laughs> I'm going to name my kids Stevie, Evie. No, yeah. I'm just kidding. I'm um, never having so, a kid. but I think this is an important point because I think it's the first, the first question or the first uh, uh, argument that would get made against this sort of thing was, okay, well, yeah, but how many people actually, um, you know, exhibit uh, this kind of uh, unusual, tra- you know, these kinds of unusual traits, this kind of ambiguity. Right. And if they it's say, one oh, well, in a hundred. Well, maybe there's some people who are weirdos, but 
it's very uncommon. It's so uncommon to the point where it doesn't need to be discussed. Well, actually, no, it's it could be as many as one percent of all people. Well, I was going to say, if it's one in a hundred, I mean, there's more ambiguously gendered people than there are Jews in the world. OK, so, uh, you know, wow, yeah, That's I mean, good, really a good way of putting it. Yeah. So, you know, take that take that for for what it's worth. That does make it, in my opinion, you know, it's, I mean, it's significant. The individual alone is significant. It doesn't matter. I don't you know, I don't care what the percentages are, but this would be significant in in any sociological psychological physiological study of any kind uh where it would be considered okay no we have to treat this we have to write this up differently blah 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 so this is significant this is not just some kind of rare case this, this is, could affect you yeah <laughs> translation this could affect you yes right uh, when genetics is taken back to the article here, when genetics is taken into consideration, the boundary between the sexes, sexes becomes even blurrier. Scientists have identified many of the genes involved in the main forms of DSD and have uncovered variations in those genes that have subtle effects on a person's anatomical or physiological sex. What's more, new technologies in DNA sequencing and cell biology are revealing that almost everyone is, to varying degrees, a patchwork of genetically different cells, some with a sex that might not match the rest of their body. Some studies even suggest that the sex of each cell drives its behavior through a complicated network of molecular interactions. I think there's much greater diversity within male or female, and there certainly is an area of overlap where some people can't easily define themselves within the binary structure, says John Ackerman, who studies sex development and endocrinology at University College London's Institute of Child Health. These discoveries do not sit well in a world in which sex is still defined in binary terms. Few legal systems allow for any ambiguity in biological sex, and a person's legal rights and social status can be heavily influenced by whether their birth certificate says male or female. That's totally true. There's no flexibility <laughs> in the law. Sure. Um, the main problem with a strong dichotomy is that there are intermediate cases that push the limits and ask us to figure out exactly where the dividing line is between males and females, says Arthur Arnold at the University of California, Los Angeles, who studies biological sex differences. And often that's a very difficult problem because sex can be defined in a number of ways. Yeah, that's a great question. How do you actually define sex? How do you define gender? Like that's that's when I almost want to throw up my hands and be like, I don't fucking know. I don't know if I'm a woman. Like, I guess I feel like I am. But like, what is a woman? Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that's the thing is that that's when you get to the point that you either kind of double down or mm -hmm. or you say, no, this is a fucking construct and you yeah. toss it, you know, and, and like it's a, you know, a human construct. It's not like a bi really a biological. It's a one made up thing. The, totally the definition up. is not as solid as you've been led to believe. Right. Right. So I think those are kind of the, you know. I think those are, I mean, there's never only two options, right? Which right. speaks well to this, but, uh, right, those, that's you usually say, well, what is go. a male? Well, like in every case where there's a definition for male or female or man or woman, it breaks down because there are exceptions to that rule. So if you say, okay, well, a woman is XX chromosomes and a man is XY chromosomes. Okay. That's a nice idea. But look at this lady who's had three children and she has XY cells in her body as well as XX cells. <laughs> Right? Yeah. So what is she? Right. And then you could say, OK, well, it's not the chromosomes. Let's look at the genitalia. Um, well, men have penises and women have vaginas. OK, well, there's women who have a vagina that ends in a blind pouch that doesn't have a uterus or ovaries. What are they? Right. There's <laughs> there's 
people with XY chromosomes that are insensitive to testosterone that develop as essentially female, and often they can be very beautiful and like model beautiful because they have no androgen influence because so they're like very feminine. Sure. Who are technically XY, who look completely female on the outside. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, the definition that I learned, you know, growing up, especially as a teenager and everything is just that, um, you know, like men, uh, walk or run in slow motion away from explosions and love Jesus. Like that, that's, that's what it means to be a man. So, oh, that's a gender role thing. Uh, well, right. So yeah. Well, how do you define masculine and feminine? Right. People say, oh, feminine is like more softer and nurturing and like yin to the yang of the male and, uh, it it gets so weird because there's always just like it's so hard to pin down exactly exactly what masculinity and maleness and femininity and femaleness really are and there's yeah. always exceptions and there's always things that make you go hmm is that really a good definition and what is the definition yeah i don't know because i mean i've had you know i've been in an area where there were explosions going off and like i couldn't do the slow motion thing so i don't think that's a very good definition <laughs> because i certainly feel like a man i don't you know I, I tried. I tried to do the slow motion thing. I, I just, I'm worried it would have, would have ended me. <laughs> uh, back to this article here. here. Here's the next section called The Start of Sex. That the two sexes are physically different is obvious, but at the start of life, it is not. Five weeks into development, a human embryo has the potential to form both male or female anatomy. Next to the developing kidneys, two bulges known as the gonadal ridges emerge alongside two pairs of ducts, one of which can form the uterus and fallopian tubes, and the other, the male internal genital plumbing, the epididymis, vas deferens, and, and seminal vesicles. At six weeks, the gonad switches on the developmental pathway to become an ovary or a testis. If a testis developed, it secretes testosterone, which supports the development of the male ducts. It also makes other hormones that force the presumptive uterus and fallopian tubes to shrink away. If the gonad becomes an ovary, it makes estrogen, and the lack of testosterone causes the male plumbing to wither. The sex hormones also dictate the development of the external genitalia, and they come into play once more at puberty, triggering the development of secondary sex characteristics such as breasts or facial hair. Changes to any of these processes can have dramatic effects on an individual's sex. Gene mutations affecting gonad development can result in a person with XY chromosomes developing typically female characteristics, whereas alterations in hormone signaling can cause XX individuals to develop along male lines. For many years, scientists believed that female development was the default program and that male development was actively switched on by the presence of a particular gene on the Y chromosome. Yeah, that's what I learned in medical school. <laughs> in 1990, researchers made headlines when they uncovered the identity of this gene, which they called SRY, which is the sex-determining region of the Y chromosome. Just by itself, this gene can switch the gonad from ovary to testicle. For example, XX individuals who carry a fragment of the Y chromosome that contains SRY develop as males. So by the turn of the but by the turn of the millennium, however, the idea of femaleness being a passive default option had been toppled by the discovery of genes that actively promote ovarian development and suppress the testicular program, such as one called Wnt4. XY individuals with extra copies of this gene can develop atypical genitals and gonads with a rudimentary uterus and fallopian tubes. Rudimentary means like kind of not very developed, like yeah. little and shrunken. In Wait, in what are you saying? No, go ahead. <laughs> in 2011, researchers showed that if another key ovarian gene, RSB, 
PO1 is not working normally, it causes XX people to develop an ovotestis, a gonad with areas of both ovarian and testicular tissue. These discoveries have pointed to a complex process of sex determination, in which the identity of the gonad emerges from a contest between two opposing networks of gene activity. Changes in the activity or amount of molecules, such as WINT4, in the networks can tip the balance towards or away from the sex, seemingly spelled out by the chromosomes. It has been, in a sense, a philosophical change in our way of looking at sex, that it's a balance, says Eric Villain, a, a clinician and director of the Center for Gender-Based Biology at the University of California, Los Angeles. It's more of a systems biology view of the world of sex. And then I'm going to read one more section, and then we, we can talk more about this. Battle of the sexes. According to some scientists, that balance can shift long after development is over. Studies in mice suggest that the gonad teeters between being male and female throughout life, its identity requiring constant maintenance. Can you believe that? Holy shit. So your, your gonads are hanging in the balance. Wow. <laughs> Literally. In 2009, researchers reported deactivating an ovarian gene called Fox one FOXL2 in adult female mice, and they found that the granulosa cells that support the development of eggs transformed into Sertoli cells, which support sperm development. Two Sounds like a sports spaghetti. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Sert yeah Sertoli, it's what's for dinner. <laughs> Two years later, a separate team showed the opposite, that inactivating a gene called DMRT1 could turn adult testicular cells into ovarian ones. That was a big shock. The fact that it was going on postnatally, says Vincent Harley, a geneticist who studies gonad development at the MIMR PHI Institute for Medical Research in Melbourne. The gonad is not the only source of diversity in sex. A number of DSDs are caused by changes in the machinery that responds to hormonal signals from the gonads and other glands. Complete androgen insensitivity syndrome, or CAIS, for example, arises when a person's cells are deaf to male sex hormones, usually because the receptors that respond to the hormones are not working. People with CAIS have Y chromosomes and internal testes, but their external genitalia are female and they develop as female at puberty. That's what I was just talking about. The people who have this androgen insensitivity syndrome, right. they often turn into like hot women because they are models, but inside they have testicles. Whoa. Yep. <laughs> Conditions such as these meet the medical definition of DSDs in which an individual's anatomical sex seems to be at odds with their chromosomal or gonadal sex, but they are rare, affecting about one in 4,500 people. Some researchers now say that the definition should be widened to include subtle variations of anatomy, such as mild hypospadus, in which a man's urethral opening is on the underside of the penis rather than at the tip. The most inclusive definitions point to the figure of 1 in 100 people having some form of DSD, says Villain. See the sex spectrum. Um, and, and then it basically has a table of like all the different uh, things that can be variations of sex. So... Um, but beyond this, there could be even more variation. Since the 1990s, researchers have identified more than 25 genes involved in DSDs, and next-generation DNA sequencing in the past few years have uncovered a wide range of variations in these genes that have mild effects on individuals rather than causing DSDs. Biologically, it's a spectrum, says Villain. 
So there we go. They're saying that not only is gender a spectrum, but biological sex is a spectrum because there's so many different genes that contribute and there's so many different things that can be used to define it. And things can go wonky with all of them. (laughs) So you have to sort of Mother Nature is a mad scientist, right? It's never (laughs) just as simple as male and female, black and white. There's always a little more variation in there. And it helps to know about biology because, you know, you can open your mind to to the possibility that, well, if there's more than one biological sex or if there's more than just two discrete binary biological sexes, um, maybe there's more than just two genders as well. Maybe there's different forms of gender that, that people might feel more comfortable with than just the simple old male and female. Yeah, you know, and I think before people start making these claims that, oh, this is just some kind of conspiracy to confuse people and to create all these problems and to destroy the family system and all this other horseshit. Um, I mean, understand like that, you know, we know that not until like the past 10, 15 years, uh, I love bringing this, this point up because it says so much is that, I mean, there wasn't a full understanding of how the woman's clitoris worked. You know, like, <laughs> well, like that it, was actively suppressed. Well, yeah. right, right. It wasn't. I mean, it wasn't fully mapped. I mean, now you know it's, it's actually like what does it have like that wishbone shape or something? Mm-hmm. Something There's to a lot it of on it the that's inside, inside the body, and the most you, sensitive parts have been mapped out of most people. Yeah, right. That you never knew about up until literally a decade ago. Okay, so for this kind of uh, a diversity and this kind of nuance to finally come into you know into fruition and to be noticed. Well, that's not surprising at all. There's no conspiracy here. Like, yeah. science just... This nor- stuff is still being worked out. They still don't really... There's still dispute about whether the G-spot is real and whether female ejaculate is just pee or not. Right. I mean, they're still trying to figure this stuff out. So just because we've had the same... Basically, humans have had the same bodies for a long time doesn't mean that everything about the body is understood. Yeah, yeah. So just... I don't want to hear people going, you know, saying, oh, this is just some kind of crazy conspiracy. Not at all. Okay. It's just now, you know, now people are willing to actually like research this stuff to, to much greater depth. Um, than, yeah, than ever exactly. Before. You have to, you have to have an open mind when you receive new information and that's exactly yeah. what's going on here. And also why does this matter? Well, I'm going to read the next section. That's going to tell you exactly why it matters beyond the binary. Biologists have been building, may have been building a new more um, oh, sorry. Biologists may have been building a more nuanced view of sex, but society has yet to catch up. True, more than half a century of activism from members of the LGBT, um, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender community have softened social attitudes to sexual orientation and gender. But many, many societies are now comfortable with men and women crossing conventional social boundaries in their choice of appearance, career and sexual partner. But when it comes to sex, there is still intense social pressure to conform to the binary model. This pressure has meant that people born with clear DSDs often undergo surgery to, quote, normalize their genitals. Such surgery is controversial because it is usually performed on babies who are too young to consent and risks of assigning a sex at odds with the child's ultimate gender identity, their sense of their own gender. Intersex advocacy groups have therefore argued that doctors and patients should at least wait until a child is old enough to communicate their gender identity, which typically manifests around the age of three, or old enough to decide whether they want surgery at all. This issue was brought into focus by a lawsuit filed in South Carolina in May 2013 by the adoptive parents of a child known as MC, who was born with ovotesticular DSD, a condition that produces ambiguous genitalia and gonads with both ovarian and testicular tissue. When MC was 16 months old, doctors performed surgery to assign the child as female. 
But MC, who is now eight years old, went on to develop a male gender identity. Because he was in state care at the time of his treatment, the lawsuit alleged not only that the surgery constituted medical malpractice, but also that the state denied him constitutional rights to bodily integrity and his right to reproduce. Last month, a court decision prevented the federal case from going to trial, but his state case is still ongoing. So basically, this is very common. And it's still happening as late as 2013. But like it back in the day, this used to be incredibly common. If there's anything that's ambiguous, that's kind of hanging out, usually what they do is chop it off, raise it as a girl and don't tell the kid. But then sometimes the kid is like, wait a minute, I'm a boy. I'm a man. And then they get sometimes they get depressed. Sometimes they end up killing themselves. This is very common. Yeah. Very, very many cases have been written about this. Yeah, you know, folks, I mean, binary systems, that's the thing for computers, not for the human condition. Uh, (laughs) I mean, really. So Valaine, Harley, and Ackerman say that doctors are taking an increasingly circumspect attitude towards genital surgery. Well, if only they would do that with circumcision, right? Yeah, that's what I was just thinking. <laughs> um, children with DSDs are treated by multidisciplinary teams that aim to tailor management and support and support to each individual and their family. But this usually involves raising a child as male or female, even if no surgery is done. Scientists and advocacy groups mostly agree on this, says Villain. It might be difficult for children to be raised in a gender that just does not exist out there. In most countries, it is legally impossible to be anything but male or female. Yet, if biologists continue to show that sex is a spectrum, then society and state will have to grapple with the consequences and work out where to draw the line. Many transgender and intersex activists dream of a world where a person's sex or gender is irrelevant. Although some governments are moving in this direction, Greenberg is pessimistic about the prospects of realizing the dream, in the United States at least. I think to get rid of gender markers altogether or to allow a third indeterminate marker is going to be very difficult. So if the law requires that a person is male or female, should that sex be assigned by anatomy, hormones, cells, or chromosomes? And what should be done if they clash? My feeling is that since there is not one biological parameter that takes over every other parameter, at the end of the day, gender identity seems to be the most reasonable parameter, says Villain. In other words, if you want to know whether someone is male or female, it may just be best to ask. That's how it ends. Sure. So he's making the point that exactly what we were saying, there's no good thing to to tell whether someone is male or female. There's like four different definitions. Sometimes those contradict each other. So what are we going to do? Decide by committee of a bunch of doctors and a bunch of sociologists whether the person's male or female? Or are we just going to let them say how they how they feel that they, well, they are? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, and it's one of the this is this is genuinely a tough struggle. I totally agree with that. Um, and I mean, because it, it gets it, it comes in contact with another very tough struggle, which is treating people as individuals as compared to grouping them and collectivizing them so much, yeah. uh, you know, in, in whatever way that, that takes shape, you know, that could be a national thing that could be, you know, all, all kinds of different things. Um, and I, I don't see any, and unfortunately, and this is kind of a, a, I guess a sour point, but I don't see any hope of that ever happening. Um, and so I'm sadly not very hopeful 
that this will be a government edict or whatever. I mean, even if it did somehow pass, I mean, you know, when, when these kinds of things, when new groups of people, okay, uh, you know, for whatever happens to group them, you know, start to get some kind of new version of rights or something like that. Historically, you usually end up with some, some fashion of a KKK that, you know, that is, that's a problem. And We're already seeing a reaction against, I think, increasing awareness about transgender people. Sure. For example, like, you know, there's, it's very polarized about what people think of transgender individuals. Sure. Where they basically, they're assigned one sex at birth and then their gender identity does not match that one. Yeah. Or people going to extremes and saying, it's like, well, but that's, that, that, that gal isn't really a gal. It's a guy and she shouldn't be in the bathroom or something like that, or, or the reverse situation, which mm. is positively ridiculous because the only people I've ever had, a, you know, like my issue with anybody doing something that I thought was untoward in, in a bathroom was usually another guy, you know, like, like straight up l- l- looking <laughs> another at cisgender a, another, guy, right? yeah, another person like, right. You know, I mean, hell I can remember what, one what time were they doing. <laughs> Well, I mean, like the, the guy was like kind of talking or whatever, and then kind of like looked over. I mean, I literally turned over and pissed on his shoe. Like I was so ticked off at like, like I just thought everything this guy was doing was rude. And you're going to complain about somebody just because of whatever you're questioning their genitalia or something like that. No, an asshole's an asshole. You know, an asshole's an asshole. That's a great way to end. But yeah, what is this? What are we hearing? It sounds awesome. Whatever yeah. it is. <laughs> well, this is the bumper music for the fourth segment. was that it's fantastic that's another new song by roll music i love all of our other bumper music wonderful thank you roll music for the new tunes and this is the lightning round all right lightning round we had a bunch of stories that uh just didn't fit in uh our other three segments so i decided to add something special a fourth segment in this last show of our season and uh just cover them all in like lightning fashion what do you say brian let's do it ready to go yeah after after that i'm ready i summon (laughs) zeus okay first one Real-life cyborgs, a company is implanting its employees with microchips. A company in Sweden is turning employees into cyborgs by implanting them with tiny microchips. These chips change how the employees interact with their office environment, giving them the ability to do everything from open doors to order snacks with a wave of their hand. There's no need to embed this into people or like to implant it into people. Just have it be a separate fucking device. Just, uh, what happened to an ID card? Yeah. Right. I know. I'm all for like cybernetic upgrades to the body as long as you can hold them and drop them. <laughs> as long as you can remove them Yeah, you got to be able to take them body. off, which people know that that's important. Brian Johnson with the Colonel Project has specifically said that that he was he was doing that. Uh, do, do you have more on the story? Um, I mean, since it's the lightning round, I won't read too much, but basically, uh, the devices aren't mandatory, but it has become popular among the company's employees with more than 150 people now being implanted with the devices. The company even hosts monthly events where participants get the implants for free, as well as parties to celebrate those who got implanted. How creepy is that? They're making it cool. Um, you know, okay, so so this is something that happens in a lot of corporate jobs now where, like, they give you discounts or they give you free Fitbits mm-hmm. and all that. 
I guarantee you that has something to do with some kind of insurance payoff at some point. Oh, probably. Like, you know, and how much do you feel like a cow? I mean, like that is just the creepiest thing. Like I'm sure schools would love to do this to their students. Oh, it'll come. And and some parents do this to their kids so they can always find their kid. Yeah. And somebody's going to, you know, some asshat's going to come out and say, it's like, well, you don't have to work there yet. Well, you don't have to implant me either. You know, I mean, like yeah. (laughs) how, how long until you can't really get a corporate job without being pressured to implant something into your skin yeah uh, not not okay not okay there, with me there it is not okay How, or what if it's it what if it actually is in government schools you can't that you can't choose not to go to well you know this is the thing is that i mean for for a correlation people say it's like uh you know well what google does and what google keeps an eye on you about uh you know you don't have to have a google account well that's bullshit because in government schools you absolutely do have to have a google account it is not a choice okay mm-hmm. if you're going to a government school and the kid doesn't have the choice you can say well the parents should be doing this or that okay fine but the kid doesn't have a choice all right and so yeah i mean this this really can get dystopian very very fast oh, i yeah. personally this already like think google accounts every, have every movie yeah, there's a movie I think that 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 has this. They're like that. This I is mean, kind the of thing the is, like, what what else do these chips do that they don't tell their employees about? Like, wouldn't the military love to do this so then they could have like summon a bunch of drones with their soldiers that are all oh, there's yeah, with DARPA's, the mind control chips or yeah. whatever. It sounds like really paranoid to say that, but I'm sure they're they're sending data back to the company, possibly the company's insurance providers, their health insurance, right? And well, the company's getting kickbacks from that. Yeah, I mean, it's, as soon as people think that it, that that sounds like crazy or extreme, again, you had a Facebook account in college, you thought it was absolutely harmless, and then your employer asked you for your username and password, and oh. you had to hand it over. And then all those pictures of you getting drunk on Friday night, you know, hanging upside down with someone's tits in your face. I mean, you know, oh shit, I can't get <laughs> a job now. Not that that's a bad thing. Oh, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just yeah, absolutely not. But it I'm might just, be bad if you can't get a job. <laughs> yeah, that that's the thing is that you think it's harmless now, and then oh, suddenly it becomes. Facebook becomes so pervasive that, oh, your employer wants to know about it. Yes, this stuff does get bad very fast. All right. Next article in our lightning round here. uh, The outrage over Marvel's alleged diversity blaming explained from Vox. Um, People are incensed that Marvel blamed poor sales on diversity, but it's complicated. Marvel, the comic book juggernaut known for bringing many iconic superheroes to life, is still figuring out how not to look like a villain. Over the weekend, part of an interview with Marvel Vice President David Gabriel made the rounds, in which Gabriel inelegantly and inadvertently suggested that poor sales reflected readers' disinterest in comics books featuring non-white and female superheroes. Okay, so first off, um, so I'm, I'm a huge comic book fan. Yeah. I, I won't turn this into a long tirade, or I'll try not to. Uh, so David Gabriel is actually VP of Sales, Okay. Not, not not like VP, VP of, of all the of whole Marvel. company. Yeah, okay. and that's a very important point that a lot of stories yes. got wrong. Okay, that is an important yeah. point. Yeah. Regardless, this is what this guy thinks, and yes, it's true. Marvel has been they they've been schlepping, pushing out like there's uh, Gwen Stacy. They turned her into Spider Gwen, which I actually thought was a great series. They they started concentrating on a lot of minor characters. Okay, and apparently their sales have not lived up to that. Well, here's a newsflash. Okay. Here, here, let me, th- this is, this is all, th- it's pure bullshit because now they're saying, well, we're going to go back to concentrating on the big characters like Thor and Iron Man. Um, you Who know, all and, happen to be males or white males or something. Well, yeah, I mean, right. They all, they all happen to fit a certain mold because they come from a certain time, quite frankly. And, and I, right. and I appreciate, you know, the, the, the problem with that. I mean, they've tried to do like the Spider-Man 2099, who's, you know, 
uh, like Hispanic or affected. Well, not, well, anyways, Miles Morales, whatever. Questionably uh, so, raised. Uh, well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, they like this has already been what worked on Japanese for a long word time. Where you can't tell in anime like what race the characters are. Oh, that's I'm. It's escaping me right now. Yeah, not that you can't tell, but that no matter what their race looks like, they're Japanese. And right. th- that's, that's, that's what the, the term is okay. for in anime. Cause a lot of people say that it's like, well, you know, how come all the Japanese draw everybody is white? No, they're not. It's like, that's just happened to be how they're drawing them, but they're Japanese, you know, like don't, don't confuse the, the, the look, you know, for, for, for the, the culture, uh, you know, and what's being put, you know, put on display. So anyway, um, you know, really this, the, it smacks so hard of like the crap when the MPAA, the motion picture association of America, you know, says, well, because of pirated movies, you know, movie ticket sales are down when, and then as soon as some great movie comes out, you find out that that's bullshit. The problem is they make crap movies. Right. And I think the same thing is true with comic books. No, Marvel makes shit comic books. They haven't made good comic books since the nineties and maybe the civil war series. Okay. It's and the other problem is, is that in every, almost every comic book company is doing this where they are rebooting their entire universe every year to two years to three years. And so there's no history for people to latch onto. So nobody wants to buy comics because everything they just read could become BS in the larger universe canon of, of comic books or of Marvel or the Marvel universe. And they've been the most egregious them and DC have both been terrible about this. Uh, so no, it's not because you know, they're, you're not concentrating on the big characters. It's because your storylines suck and you keep rebooting your universes to where nobody can get attached to any of these characters. I mean, and there's, oh, yeah, that's annoying. Yeah. It's really annoying because I mean, that's, that's kind of what, what helped, you know, what made comic books was so great was that, you know, it, like an, if you're in a family, you know, daddy and, you know, and, and, and his daughter or whatever, they, they could, they could relate to the same comic book characters and they could talk to each other about the same storylines and history, like crisis on infinity earth or something, you know, and n- now that that's just not so anymore, you know, you, like you can't really relate anymore to, to what's going on. So it, it, it's a cheap shot. It's a really cheap shot. And it's a nice way to try and make themselves look good to explain, well, this is why the movies do so well, because it concentrates on the big characters because the comic books aren't, uh, that's, that's why they're failing. And, and so it's, it's just stupid. Sorry. I, I did turn that into a tirade. <laughs> no, that's okay. That's fine. Um, atheists at risk of dying out due to a belief in contraception study claims, from the independent.co.uk. <laughs> a lot of these are from Cognitive Dissident, but actually that Marvel one was from uh, Mike Oxhard. Uh-huh. So thanks, Mike. Thanks, Cognitive Dissident. And we also have another listener email too in this segment. So uh, atheists at risk of dying out due to belief in contraception. A new study has suggested that atheism is doomed because religious people have higher rates of reproduction. Due to their lack of belief in contraception, religious believers are having more children than atheists are, which could ultimately result in the end of atheism, the study, the study suggests. The findings fly in the face of popular discourse and scientist predictions, which implies fewer and fewer people are religious nowadays. So that's, I mean, this is kind of interesting, but I think the flaw is they're assuming that religion is like genetically transmitted. I mean, it's obviously not genetically transmitted. Maybe there's a genetic component to to how skeptical people are or how credulous Mm -hmm. people are. Um, Not completely, obviously, because that's not genetic determinism, but um, maybe there's a component to it. But environmentally transmitted, perhaps, you know, if you're raised in a religious family, I guess I suppose it's more likely that you will be that particular religion. Yeah. 
Yeah. Or did, but did I've, you? I've certainly heard of plenty of people who were raised religious and became atheists. I mean, what's the way to fastest well, way to make someone become an atheist? Show them the Bible, right? Well, that's, whatever holy book they, not yeah. just the Bible, but whatever holy book. You took the words right out of my mouth. Look, atheists aren't born. Okay. Oh, well, I mean, actually, I maybe, arguably maybe we're all born. We're atheists, all born right? atheists. Okay, but you know, atheists aren't like bred. I, I should say, uh, atheists are created by religion itself. Like, I mean, that's, that's just how it is folks. And, and the only thing that actually wipes out atheists is either natural death or, um, in fact, there's a great quote by a a youth pastor who, who said that, look, the rise of atheism, there's nothing you can do about it. The only thing we can hope, and this is a youth, a Christian youth pastor said this, he said, the only thing we can hope is that they don't treat us as bad as we treated them. Wow. And that's interesting. And like that, that is so dead on, you know, I mean, and you can look at it historically. There have been atheists forever. Okay. In fact, there's even great books that talk about all this that aren't even written by atheists saying, no, there's always been atheists. Uh, and like Epicurus is one of the first atheists, right? Or not one of the first, but he's one of the more popular atheists. And it's amazing how much, like even in Judaism, in Christianity, if you proclaim Epicureanism, you, you know, like that's, that's worse than denying the Holy ghost or something. It's, it's a horrendous, horrendous thing to do. I mean, you, you get excommunicated. Okay. You got to understand religion is what really, I mean, religion is what creates atheists at the same time. It is very much what kills them. Historically, it is what has killed them. It's what mm. shunned them and kicked them out. Why? Because they don't want to play ball, you know, because they, you know, Rudolph well, finally said, screw your reindeer games. Don't even bother inviting me. I mean, well, apparently now they're killing themselves off because they're not breeding as yeah, much as religious people are. I, I don't buy that argument. I mean, actually, that was, <laughs> well, I, I, let's just say I've heard that before. And yeah. I, I, I don't really buy it. I mean, you shouldn't, I don't think if you're somebody who wants to use technology, i.e. birth control, to limit the size of your family you should be able to have the power to make that decision. You should be able to control that and decide that. And why not, right? If you're someone who feels pressured by religious obligation or or just because you think birth control is wrong to have a lot of children, then you're going to have more children, but are you necessarily going to have a happier life? I don't, I mean, I don't know. Sure, right. So, yeah. I, personally, I would rather have the choice. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Again, as long as the Bible's in print, there's going to be atheists. Guess what? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's right. As long as they have like the set of rules that they can look at and think about critically and it's not made up as you go along, even though it seems like it still is at times, um, you're going to have atheists. So it doesn't matter what their breeding practices are. (laughs) Breeding practices. Mm. You want to practice breeding later tonight? Uh, We could practice. We're going to be on our season break for a month. I mean, we might as well take a little honeymoon, right? (laughs) Yeah. All right. Our last listener email. This is from Chris. Chris says, hello. So when Brian told the story about the religious guy at work who clicked on something that started spreading porn around to everyone in the company and running around, it reminded me of something that happened recently to me. Home Run In Pizza's official Facebook page was basically posting ads for porn recently. It was hilarious. 
Someone running their account must have clicked on something. They kept putting out, or they put out an apology and everything. It went on for days. The page kept posting super pornographic pics, blurred out, and the headlines were pretty suggestive as well. It was awesome. Had to share. And home run in frozen pizza is pretty good, if you were wondering. Take care. I'll have to give them a try. (laughs) Yeah, that's funny. So you told that story a couple weeks ago where some guy at your company, what did he do? He clicked on a spam email. Yeah, something. And it it started posting for him in Facebook. And and, and everybody he was running down the cubicles trying saying like, don't look at my Facebook. Don't look yeah. at my Facebook. Right? And when other people would click on it, it would kind of cause the same thing. I mean, <laughs> you know, immediately when you see porn on like, re- you know, like linkable porn on Facebook, you should instantly know, OK, there's something wrong here. Yeah. You, you know, as much as really there should be linkable porn on Facebook, you know, I'm like I'm not opposed to that. And, you know, I, I'm you know, I just got to say about that story, the pizza company. That one day will finally embrace sexuality. Not that we need more guys and dicks and all this <laughs> shit, right? But the the company that actually says, we'll sell you the big sausage pizza. I mean, you know. Yeah, and, uh, I know, right? Because that's the plot of every porno. The pizza delivery person comes and they're hot and they come in right. and give you the big sausage pizza or yeah, whatever. Yeah, because, you know... Th- th- the, the pizza is the dick, right? And, <laughs> <laughs> as a good friend would say. And so, <laughs> you know, with, as soon as a, a pizza company embraces that, oh man, they, I mean, they're, they're in, they're in for it. I mean, there was already, I, even I remember in, when I was a kid in the nineties, like there was the pizza Hut ad was, Hey, pizza, Hut, do you deliver? Like in everybody, that was a huge joke for either getting drugs or, you know, a hookup or something like that. So it's already oh. been a part of it. Somebody just needs to take it on literally uh-huh. and, and very openly. Anyway, mm-hmm. home run pizza. There you go. Hit a home run. Oh, yeah. Big sausage pizza. All right. <laughs> well, <laughs> I think we're going to. You're a little end- too excited about that. <laughs> I think we're going to end it off there. Thank you so much for a great season. I hope you enjoyed our segment for tonight. Um, we're going to be back with our after show. So it's not quite over yet. But in case you're leaving us now, in case you don't have time to catch our after show, thank you so much for being a loyal Sex and Science Hour listener. Hey, make sure you follow us on Twitter. We're at Sex Science Hour. It's a little bit different than Sex and Science Hour. At Sex Science Hour. Also, um, subscribe to our podcast feed so you get the shows of season four as soon as they start coming out. Subscribe to us on iTunes or RSS, whichever you use. And of course, don't forget to check back at our website, which is sexandsciencehour.com. We'll be back at you in, I suppose, May. Yeah, we'll be back at you in May with season four of Sex and Science Hour. Thank you so much. And stay tuned for the after show if you want to hear more. Sex and Science Hour. Game over. Play again next week.
That's another season in the can. Woo! Good job, Brian. Are we going to tell people what happened? <laughs> well, I mean, now we might as well, right? We, we're actually recording this the next day. <laughs> because we recorded this whole After show the episode, last night. Right. It was a great episode. And we're like, yes, we're almost done. We just have to do the after show. We recorded a whole after show. And folks... It turns out I fucked up big time. I press play instead of record. So that whole after show last night was lost. And, and it was a sh- damn shame because it was a funny and good after show. Yeah. And uh, it was actually the best podcast I think ever recorded by any other podcast in the history of the world. But now no one will ever hear it. Mm-hmm. <sighs> I mean, <laughs> this is like the cardinal sin of podcasting. Not having a backup recorder going, yeah. first of all. And and not pressing the right fucking button. I mean, come on. What are we, amateurs or something? We're professionals. This is our this is our this nearly our fourth season of Sex and Science Hour. I've been podcasting for nearly a decade, <laughs> so I really have no excuse. So anyway, I so, committed the cardinal sin of podcasting. Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. Oh, don't let me start doling out the... Uh, uh, All right. The, well, you know what? This is already turning out better than our show from last yeah. night anyway. So. so, well, this is the best after show in the world tribute. Yeah. People will get it. It, it is the tribute to the best after show in the world. <laughs> and it's actually, it's the best after show yet, because there's going to be even better after shows in the future. And there's going to be even better Sex and Science Hour shows in the future. Because oh, we'll be We'll be rocking it all on into the future. But um, just to uh, get, do a little business catch up, because we, we did that on our Lost After Show, um, I, uh, I just wanted to say thank you so, so much to everybody who supported our show by shopping through stuff.sexandsciencehour.com throughout our last season and throughout the whole time we've been doing the show, because it's, it's due to you that we actually have a little bit of revenue coming in to support us doing the show. Yes. And um, it's not just that we buy bags of popcorn with it and we, you know, buy microphones and stuff. I hate, I hate popcorn. <laughs> I actually hate popcorn, too. We tried this cappuccino popcorn recently. It was disgusting. It was not very good. My friend liked it, but you didn't like it, right? No, but I mean, and, and I like cappuccino. I just, yeah, yeah popcorn, popcorn can't do it. Popcorn doesn't mix, yeah. You can't put corn in. I mean, Americans already put corn in everything in corn syrup format. But anyway. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, up their butts. So we're not. <laughs> that's right. So we're not just like pissing the money away. We use it to pay, you know, obviously for any costs we have associated with the show. If we have to buy website hosting or anything like that yes. or SoundCloud subscription. But um, those costs are not huge. But what we what we're planning on using it for is once we reach our goal, which is we want to have a thousand dollars a month coming in through our stuff dot sex and science hour link, and potentially we might add in Patreon revenue once we do a Patreon page, but we don't have that. So right now we're trying to solely do it just on Amazon stuff to make it the most voluntary you poss and the most fun we possibly can to support us. Once we reach our goal, we're going to start doing real life meet space stuff like listener meetups and parties. Yeah. And we're going to start using that because it's a more serious budget. We're going to start using that to travel around to events that maybe you might be at if you're not in this sort of Boston area um, like we are that we could possibly meet you at and have a listener party. So be a great if, time. If you want that future, if you see the future that Sex and Science Hour wants, if you caught the vision, then do me a favor and shop via stuff.sexandsciencehour.com. It is now to the point where how much, what is the percentage of online dollars that's spent on Amazon or, or the percentage of all dollars or something like that? It's a ridiculous oh. percentage of all the dollars that are spent online are spent on Amazon. 
Yeah, it's like half of every dollar spent online is, is, spent, go, on is spent on Amazon. And I believe it because it's definitely my biggest uh, – <laughs> I'm definitely the, a big spender on Amazon. So um, do us a favor and it doesn't cost you anything. It doesn't change the price you pay. All it means is you just go, go to uh, stuff.sexandsciencehour.com, buy something within 24 hours of going through that link, and um, we will get a little purchase to, or we will get a little cut to support our show and to start having parties that you can attend. And those will be all paid for by stuff.sexandsciencehour.com. So if you like that idea, you should shop through that link and encourage your friends to shop through that link. And there's great things coming in season four. We have all kinds of ideas. Won't go into it too much now because it was, I think it was like episode 21 or 22 or 23 of this season that we did a little business review and check in of like, hey, how are we doing with with stuff.sexandsciencehour.com and um how are we doing with sort of our business goals for this show? What are we planning to do? You know, are we going to do a Patreon? Are we going to do a Facebook group? What do we want to, you know, have our, how do we want to engage with our listeners best? So we had a little meeting about that. I'm going to go back and listen to it because I forget what we talked about. <laughs> but that's the great thing about recording your meeting is you have built-in minutes. So anyway, um, if you want a business review, go listen to that. But right now, we're just going to end off the season by talking about what did people buy through stuff.sexandsciencehour.com this week. You know, real quick, just as like a season end cap, I want to say the things yeah. I'm 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 kind of disappointed that nobody's bought through our link. Like there's no no real pop-up tents, no slip no and slides. Yeah, no no gallons of baby oil. <laughs> no uh I I mean I was, you know, there's some things you I was kind of hoping to, to make see. a backyard slip and slide. Ooh. Well, they can't buy lawn darts because lawn darts are illegal you have to use tour and yeah uh, bitcoin and something yeah along those lines they can't buy that on amazon but no unfortunately not yeah i too am disappointed that nobody made a slip and slide in their backyard with a tarp but yeah um well there's always season four for that (laughs) that's right season four this could be rectified people could be having you know the right stuff in their backyard so stuff.sexandsciencehour.com all right what did people buy this Uh, we got to pause it all right, everything's been fixed. It's the magic of podcasting. <laughs> um, so what did people buy? Uh, well, first of all, we must have somebody who's allergic to pillows because we've got some replacement pillows. We had the Biopedic Eco Classic 240 thread count standard pack of pillows. It's a four pack for $34.95. And we also got a four pack of premium pillow protectors. Now, what is a pillow protector? You've probably heard of pocket protectors, but pillow protectors protect you from dust mites in your pillows, which not, inevitably get in there. Yeah, you know? I mean, that's good. Not so much a, a social statement as a pocket protector, though. I, I really think, like, I, I have a lot of respect for people that wear those. Well, I mean, in a way, it's like it's on your bed, so people you bring home to see your bed are going to see that you have pillow protectors. That's true. That could be quite impressive. you're a true nerd, right? Or, yeah, or just that, look, you know, I'm serious about your health here. And, I mean, that can send an excellent message. <laughs> exactly. We had some Soylent that was purchased. So Soylent has really cleaned up their act. There was a thing about, like, these Soylent bars that were making people puke or something. Okay. But they rectified that situation. Some people really like it. This is a drink that tastes like coffee, but it's actually like a vitamin shake. That's like a meal replacement kind of thing. Okay. And it's called Soylent Coffeeist, ready to drink breakfast. And somebody must really like it because they bought two, not one, but two, 12 packs of this stuff. Wow. Yeah. So they're going to have Soylent for a month. I would be interested to, to hear how this works out for you. I've talked about this many times. Like, this is something I really want. Like, I want 
the ability, not that I don't, I mean, I like cooking. I actually, I really do. I like cooking food. Um, you know, I like having colorful meals and all this, We're you know, wild to add shit to your and everything. Cooking repertoire. Yeah. Before Brian met me, he didn't cook at all, understand this. And so I've taught him to cook some simple stuff. Yes. You've definitely, <laughs> um, opened my horizons to the joy of cooking. And I mean that actually very seriously. But anyway, but I love the idea of like liter- of a meal that is just in a can or something like that, like one, you know, and, and that yeah, covers all the bases. Yeah, complete. Yeah. yeah and and you can drink it and drive on, you know, like I, yeah. I'm excited about that. I feel like that's the holy grail of nutritional supplements. Like people have been trying to do that, but it's, it's not quite as good as the real, you know, like a mm-hmm. varied diet, but it's, you know, it's getting better all the time. So anyway, um, each 400 calorie bottle of coffee, as they say, is a complete meal and the caffeine of a strong cup of coffee. I mean, that sounds perfect for me. I want to hear how this goes. Feel free to email us. All right, us. send us a Soylent review. Stretch, unlock the power of less and achieve more than you ever imagined by Scott Sonenshine. A groundbreaking approach to succeeding in business and life using the science of resourcefulness. We often think of the key to success and satisfaction as getting more. More money, more time, more possessions, bigger budgets, job titles, teams, additional resources for our professional and personal goals. It turns out we're wrong. Using captivating stories to illustrate research in psychology and management, Rice University professor Scott Sonenshine examines why some people and organizations succeed with so little while others fail with so much. That sounds like an interesting book. Yeah, and I thought it was a book about Jesus, you know, like taking the fish and the loaves and like tossing it out to everybody. It's like, oh, yeah, I can feed 500 people. Sure. (laughs) Stretch. But... (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Well, anyway, uh, that book is available hardcover and audible edition. I might have to listen to that audio book. That sounds very interesting. Indeed. Seven Brief Lessons on Physics, also in the books department by Carlo Rovielli. I need this because, okay, here's what it is. A playful, entrancing, and mind-bending introduction to modern physics briskly explains Einstein's general relativity, quantum mechanics, elementary particles, gravity, black holes, the complex architecture of the universe, and the role humans play in this weird and wonderful world. I need that. I barely understood, like, you know, like elementary uh, particle physics, like where, not particle physics. Um, That's not elementary. No, no, I know. It's I, <laughs> See, I even don't even know the fucking name for it. It's like, um, what do you call it when you throw a ball and it's like, okay, how fast is it going to fall towards the earth Rope. based on gravity? And uh, what's the vector of the direction the ball is going in? Like it's that. Like, like kinetic energy and all yeah, that? Yeah, kinetics. Yeah, that's okay. that's what I, yeah. um, I, I barely passed. I, not barely pa- I mean, barely passing for me was like getting a B, but um, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> that was my worst. That was my weakest suit in school was physics. And I barely could grasp my head around the, the uh, throwing a ball kind of physics. I cannot grasp um, space time physics. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll tell you, like, uh, first off, I'm sure this book is great. Okay. Uh, but like when I hear briskly describing like, <laughs> the theory of general relativity, I mean, yeah. yeah. Is there, is there a page count on that, on that book? Uh, no, I, I can't see one easily. Oh uh, shit. Yeah. All right. Well, anyway, I'll tell you, you know, Stephanie, I mean, what you're describing and I've actually had, so, you know, I run a, a science and tech show myself uh-huh. Yeah. and there's times where I bring up a lot of heavy duty science and it's a challenge to like, to try and break this stuff down even, you know, within 10 minutes, let alone a two hour podcast. I mean, like it's really 96 difficult pages. 
96. Wow. No okay. way. There's just no way. <laughs> I'm intrigued. Yeah. So, well, a book that has uh, some more breadth instead of brisk uh, that I recommend <laughs> is uh, uh, The Physics of Star Trek by Lawrence Krauss. Uh, and, oh, yeah. That's one I've been meaning to read. Yeah, I think you'd like it, and yeah. especially for what you described, because it explains physics based upon how this technology in Star Trek would work. And so I think it makes it entertaining and I think it makes it stick because you're applying it to, to something you have, especially if you're like a big time Star Trek fan. Like I know you are Stephanie. Oh, um, I'm such a Star Trek fan. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's, it's just, a, I mean, it, it's older, you know, it's got with 10, 20 years on it, but it, it's really, really well worth it. So anyway, please let's continue. Very cool. All right. Well, somebody's learning Japanese because we have, uh, the essential kanji, 2,000 basic Japanese characters systematically arranged for learning and reference by P.G. O'Neill. It's so Japanese, arranging them systematically, right? <laughs> well, it's not like they're going to be learning Korean, hey, Japanese friends? <laughs> what? <laughs> I don't understand. The Korean invasion, the Japanese uh, invaded Korea, invaded and, Korea, oh, destroyed their entire language. Why and that's got to go bring that up. That's yeah. why that's why in, you can tell Korean from all other Southeast Asian uh, languages because it has all these funny circles. Mm -hmm. And that's because that's literally the shape of the, the shape mouth, of the mouth yeah. because they had to rebuild their entire language from scratch. Like they could still talk it, but they they like they literally lost. All right. How the hell do you write this thing? Yeah, that's so, bad. That's bad when yeah. you beat somebody into submission so bad they forget to like their lone language. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So any, anyway, sorry. So when learning the Japanese language, I went dark. All right, let's go. Uh, read real Japanese fiction, short stories by contemporary writers. So this is like little vignettes to help you learn Japanese. Nice as well. Yeah, that's very cool. Um, a half inch black on white tape for P Touch Labeler. So this is like label. Printing tape. I have one of these label machines that prints out little labels that you can stick on things like, I don't know, tubes. And I used to use it in, my, in the lab when I was working in the lab. I'd label stuff like tubes and buffers and things like that. Hmm, machines. Okay. Um, so you got to have label tape if you're going to run a labeler, really. Yes. Kensington Expert Trackball Mouse. Now, this is an $80 mouse. Ooh. If you want it wireless, you can pay $82 for it. But this person got the wired version. And it looks like... Remember those things that, like when we were little kids, it was a toy called the Simon, and it was like a oh, circle yeah. with four colored quadrants of the circle, and it would light up and play a sound with each color, and then you'd have to remember the order in which it played the sounds and I love lit these up. Games. Oh, those are so cool. Well, this mouse kind of looks like that because it has four buttons arranged in the sort of quadrants with a big trackball in the middle. And I guess some people love trackball mice. I, it's very different from the mouse that I'm used to using, but I could see how it could be somebody's thing. Yeah, I never, like, I get it, but at the same time, like, it just, I never got it. Like, it never worked out for me using a trackball and all that. Right. They, for a while, they made mice that could do both, and those were those were interesting, and I could kind of see the application. But really, unless I'm playing Centipede, like, the trackball, the trackball just doesn't doesn't do it for me so yeah. but i i think that's fantastic that looks like a beautiful little piece of hardware and and rock on thank you right on well um you may want to uh, get off of the computer and get into the real world and if so oh, that's great you, advice. you're gonna need some com you're gonna need some colored pencils in fact you could get a set of 24 with a stand-up easel case like this listener did for 1776 the year of america's birthday <laughs> um you could get a, a set of 24 colored pencils with their very own case. And these are like, 
These are nice. They look like kind of flat colored pencils. And a flat pencil is always nice because then not only do you have the the point that you can use at varying widths, but also it's not going to roll away. Ah. Yeah. Yeah, these would probably be good for um, coloring me when I'm surprised. Color you surprised. Okay. Uh, we had a multi-tool. Um, you ever seen these Leatherman tools that it's like, it's like a pair of pliers, but like it has all these other tools built into it, like a screwdriver and a knife and like a file oh, yeah. and like all this other stuff. Yeah, those remember. are nice. Um, well, this is a, a Gerber multi-tool and it was $50 price point. So I think that's on par with, or maybe cheaper than the, uh, the Leatherman, but, um, it's got a ruler. It's got various, um, screwdriver bits it's got several knives, like a serrated knife and a uh, regular sharp knife, a couple of files, um, prob- a needle nose plier, of course, and probably some other things I'm missing, like a like a uh, bolt, well, screw, like a wrench kind of thing. All right, so so like I'm a big fan of these things, um, and Gerber's a fine company, you know. I mean, it's just as well as that it's not a Leatherman. Um, admittedly, these things, like what they can, and Swiss Army knives kind of started this trend where. The tools that they're listing off, like, oh, it has 21 tools. Yeah, there's like maybe nine functional tools, if that. Like, I, I mean, a lot of them are kind of stretching the definition of a tool, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and, uh, I know a lot of people like that who stretch the definition of a tool. Yeah. Yeah. You're, <laughs> all the things. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. But I mean, this is still cool. I, like I said, I love these things, but I, I do. Th- I always find it humorous. It's like, oh, yeah, it has a bottle opener. It's like, oh, you call that a bottle opener. I see. Anyway, like it doesn't really work very well. No, yeah, it's, right. it's very it's impractical a to have it. Yeah, I know yeah. what you mean. Okay, so anyway, the next item was an iris airtight food storage container, but this is a giant food storage container. It's 47 quarts and it has wheels. So you know what this you know what this made me think of? I guess you could use it to store dog food. That would be like the biggest thing I could think of. Like uh-huh. you'd pour a bag of dog food in there. But what it made me think of was Brian is reading this book called Drugs as a Weapon Against Us by John Potash. And Brian's smirking because I know I tell everybody about this book. The real reason I'm so interested is because it looks like a fascinating book. And I've been basically reading it over his shoulder. (laughs) I've been sort of like dabbling and reading it along with him. And it's a fascinating book. Um, So anyway, it's it's basically about how... Um, very, the government, the U.S. government and maybe other governments too, like kind of infested various activist movements and seeded them with drugs like LSD and like heroin and other drugs and you used it to basically neutralize them as effective activism movements like the hippies and yeah. the Grateful Dead. And they said at the Grateful Dead concerts, there used to be trash cans that were full of Kool-Aid. But the Kool-Aid was laced with LSD and people could drink out of it. So that's what this storage container made me think out of it. <laughs> okay, or think got about. it. All right, real quick. You know, there's a reason I read on a Kindle, okay, on, on, on an e-reader. Because that way nobody can see that I'm reading conspiracy theory books and trashy romance novels. All yes. right, <laughs> I love trashy romance. Second only so, to conspiracy books. So you're not supposed to tell everybody what I'm reading. Like, <laughs> like literally for the past month, you've been, because this is a, it's actually a massive tome. All right. Um, and I haven't, like, there's some stuff in it I fact-checked. There's other stuff I haven't. So 
but like you've been telling everybody, it's like, Brian's reading this great book. You should explain it to them. And like, you're like <laughs> setting me up to look nuts, you know, because like, okay, how do I explain? Oh yeah. Yeah. So, so the, you know, the CIA did this and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, you know, and it's like, wow, what a great opener. What a great way to meet people. So, so, you know, so my, my boyfriend's crazy. And <laughs> oh, anyway, please continue. <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of, uh, I do recommend the book. Go on. Speaking of aliens, we had a book, Star Trek Strangers from the Sky adapted oh fantastic have you read that one strangers from the sky i believe i have who is that vonda mcintyre i don't know because i couldn't pull up the page for oh it, okay so i'm not sure that, that sounds was. vaguely familiar mm-hmm. it's an audiobook no it was a it was a book but it was from a, like a third or maybe it was an audiobook because yeah w- like when i click on audible titles that show up in our list it doesn't come up so anyway, oh, okay yeah, anyway it must have been an audiobook always start star trek books are always a good time bottom mm-hmm. line um, we had a ever pure, uh, filter cartridge for like, um, basically, you know, those fountain drinks, um, it's, this is like a filter cartridge for those. Oh, like yeah. It's a you, little, it's a little black, like cylinder. It's a little gray cylinder. Yeah. Oh, it's great. It yeah. Could be black, I used but, to, boy, I remember years and years ago, I used to change those. You, you know, clean them, you, you soak know them in water. You know those well, cause yeah. you've worked in the fast food industry. I have worked in the restaurant business. <laughs> Sanitizer, the whole thing. Well, speaking of restaurants, we had a barbecue brush, a 12-inch stainless steel handle with silicone bristles for basting your meats. I was going to say, that'll feel good on the ass. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> it could be a sex toy. I mean, yeah, it's got that long handle, so you never know. You get When you got to reach over someone at the orgy to baste their bum. Um, I got my assless chaps on. Let's do it. <laughs> a tobacco spice herb grinder, pink color, and uh, that was seven seven ninety five price point. So it lets you grind up... I guess like flavorings for that you can mix in with cigarettes or maybe weed, I suppose. <laughs> An herb grinder. What kind of herb are they talking about, right? Yeah, hey, hey. I think I've seen these before with people who roll their own cigarettes where they just crush things up or maybe the tobacco itself. I don't know. Um, I don't know because I don't smoke. So I really have no idea about this whole world, but somebody's, uh, somebody's using that out there. So I hope you're having fun. All right. Vonderhagen shave butter, six ounces. Vonderhagen. It's made out of shea butter. It's shave butter made out of shea butter and mango butter and cocoa butter and macadamia nut oil. So all in all, a very greasy shave probably makes your face really soft and smooth or whatever you're shaving. Um, Butter my biscuit. We had some kitchen drawer organizers for silverware, a pack of two for 18 bucks. That's cool. You got to keep your forks organized. Um... Wow, a f- somebody bought a full mattress, $249, me- made out of memory foam, 12-inch, premium, ultra-plush, and it-, it describes the mattress as cloud-like for only $249. What size? A, f- a full mattress, memory foam. Uh, full size. Full- so it's oh. like, it's like you know, one size above twin, right? Like sure. Like between twin and queen. Sure. Yep. Okay. So that's not bad. I mean, that's cheap. No, that's good. Those have you ever bought a memory foam mattress and had it delivered from Amazon? I have, and it comes in a box, and then you open it up, and it just like foom, it like unfolds, it like unfurls, and then it has that smell of memory foam. But once you get past the smell, everything's fine. Um, But it's cool how they can pack it into a box like that. It's good advice for life. Once you get past the smell, it's fine. Yep, definitely. Take that for season three. (laughs) Um. We had the uh, Aki USB-C adapter to micro USB 3-pack for MacBook Pro. It's, it's like some kind of USB adapter. Yeah. Oh, USB-C to, to USB micro. Nah. So it lets you okay. convert that kind of attachment. 
All right. Hey, have fun. Uh, UV lamps, um, ultraviolet lamps for HVAC indoor systems, um, or I guess for looking for cum on the walls. I right? was if just you're, thinking If that. you're a son CSI, a detective. True Skin Naturals Vitamin C Serum for Face Organic Anti-Aging Wrinkle Topical Facial Serum with Hyaluronic Acid and Vitamin C. Now, hyaluronic acid and vitamin C are the two science-based things that are supposed to make your face look like you're not as old. The face? Yeah, because um, vitamin C is needed for collagen formation. Collagen and elastin are the two proteins in the skin that give it a youthful appearance when they're present in high amounts. And as you age, you lose collagen and elastin, and your skin loses um, firmness and elasticity as a result, respectively. So vitamin C helps with collagen formation, and hyaluronic acid is like this... It's like this stuff that kind of retains water in the tissue and makes it look firm and plump. So there you go. The face. The face. Yeah. Okay. And it's only 20 bucks for uh, one ounce of it. So that's pretty good. 20 bucks to look youthful forever. Where's the price? Yes, that's right. The price of eternal youth. <laughs> um, I mean, because some of those face things, they charge like millions of dollars. Not millions, but like they charge a lot of money for. But I think 20 bucks is like a pretty reasonable Oof, price. Imagine what it costs Ponce de Leon. <laughs> right. Um, it, well, he paid the ultimate price because he <laughs> never found the fountain of youth and he died. What are you so. talking? It's in St. Augustine. I drank from it. <laughs> Well, why didn't you give me a sip? I mean, come on. We'll, we'll go to Florida and do it. Our last thing was the void. A blood-soaked man limping down a deserted road is rushed by Officer Carter to a nearby hospital with a skeleton crew. Trapped inside by hooded figures, Carter discovers that the patients and the staff are transforming into something inhuman. Damn. And this is like, I guess, a horror movie. Okay. Wow crazy i i'm curious how that went all right well uh that's it and brian has to go so thank you so much for tuning in it's been a great season of sex and science hour encourage your friends to shop through stuff.sexandsciencehour.com so we can have some listener parties and bring us all together and we'll see you next season we'll be back in may thank you so much for tuning in have a great time everybody and we'll see you very very soon 